Um, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 18, we are finishing out our parable series this morning. We're going to be in Luke 18 verses 9 through 14. And like I said, today's our last day of the parable series that we've been in. And today's passage, really a lot like the this parable of the prodigal son, um, which we studied a few weeks ago, is one of the best known stories that Jesus told. It's possible that you've heard this story so many times, you're very familiar with it. Um, but the fact is this, that this story is really a foundational story for our being able to understand the gospel. Let me begin this morning by just reading the passage to you in verses 9 through 14. It says this, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner." I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I read a story this week about an ancient rabbi. He was from the second century named Rabbi Simeon. Um, And he was quoted as saying this, If there were only 30 righteous persons in the world, I and my son would make two of them. But if there were but 20, I and my son would be of that number. And if there were but 10, I and my son would be of the number. And if there were but five, I and my son would be of the five. And if there were but two, I and my son would be those two. And if there were but one, myself should be that one. And it sounds silly to us to think of yourself as that righteous. And for Rabbi Simeon from the second century, it could be said here, borrowing from the first verse of our text today, that he was confident in his own righteousness. And as a result, he looked down on everyone else that wasn't as great as him. What happens to you and me when we read stories like this or stories like uh, the one we read in Luke 18 at least for me anyway, is my initial response is this. The Pharisee is the bad guy and people like Rabbi Simeon are the bad guy and they are in the story because they're self-righteous. It's an easy parable for us to understand. Just don't be like them and honor God by being humble. And maybe we've heard this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector so often that it's become for us this sort of comfortable parable that we put on and we apply to other people like Rabbi Simeon or some other Christian that hurt you. And we begin to call people Pharisees because it makes us feel better. We look down our noses at the Pharisees of the world, and in the process, what we do is we unconsciously respond like this. We say something like this, thank God I am not like the Pharisee. 
But the irony is this, when that is our reaction, what we're doing is we are demonstrating that we are like the Pharisee. The risk is self-righteousness. And it can happen when we look down our noses at sinners, and it can happen when we look down our noses at the self-righteous as well. And this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look at prayer again. Last week, the parable of the persistent widow was the parable we looked at, and we learned that the persistent widow in her prayers, or from that parable, we learned that prayer shows us what we think of God. God is not like the unjust judge. We are not like the widow without resources. And when we persist in prayer, what we are saying is we are confident that God is gracious and he's caring. Today in this parable, we're going to learn that our prayers unwittingly reveal what we think of ourselves. So again, last week taught us that how we pray teaches us what we think about God. And this week, we will learn that how we pray teaches us what we think about ourselves. The parable begins today with verse 10, which again says this, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Let me share with us just a little bit of background that I think will be really helpful for us. In English, which is probably the language that most of us speak in here, we commonly use the word pray to refer to private devotion. And then we use the word worship to refer to what a community does together, right? So we go to church to worship together. We pray privately, we worship corporately. In Semitic speech, so Aramaic, Hebrew, Arabic, when you use this phrase to pray, it's used for both what we in English call worship and prayer. So on Sundays, the Christian in the Arab world would say to his friends, I'm going to pray. And his friends would know that he means that he's on his way to a public worship service. The reason that this is important for us is because in this parable, the men are on their way to pray, Jesus says. So they're on their way to a public worship service, which involves individual prayer. And here's why I find this detail so important for us as we study this parable this morning. I want you to remember this uh, for later. In Jesus's day, during a daily worship service, Each service would begin outside of a sanctuary. So sort of picture yourself here at the great high altar with a sacrifice for the sins of Israel. So on the altar would be a sacrificial lamb whose blood was sprinkled on that altar following the Old Testament precise ritual. So then in the middle of the worship time, the officiating priest would enter the outer part of the sanctuary and would offer incense and trim the lamps. And then during that time, when the priest goes into the sanctuary in the worship service, those who are gathered while the priest is gone offer their private prayers to God. So look with me at Luke chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, just so you know I'm not making this up. It's up on the screen. It says this, now while he, he being Zechariah, was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. Okay, so these men went to the temple to pray. They were at a worship service. Halfway through the worship service, the priest goes inside to burn the incense, and they stay outside and pray. So it was customary for them to pray while the priest offered the incense. And I just want us to have this picture in our heads as we study this parable. The Pharisee and the tax collector are at this worship service. They're looking at the atoning sacrifice of the lamb for Israel as they're praying. And this is the scene and the setting for our parable this morning. Jesus' audience would have had this in their minds. And then one more thing that we need to know by way of context is this. The intended contrast that Jesus is making with a Pharisee and a tax collector is sort of lost on us because we are not ancient Jews. Our culture is different. And tax collectors were the scum of Jewish society. I've told us this before, but a tax collector in Jesus' day, they were the religious and political traitors of Hebrew society. They were utterly despicable. They worked for the Roman government. They stole from their own people. I read this week that maybe the best equivalent in today's culture would be a drug dealer or a pimp. Those who prey on society, who make their money off of other people by stealing from them. In the other corner of Jesus' parables, we have this tax collector that they don't like. And in the other corner is a Pharisee. He's a respectable member of Jewish society. He had justly earned his reputation. He was highly esteemed in Jewish society. And you could count on a Pharisee to love the law and attempt to uphold it. And so for us to read this parable properly through first century Jewish eyes, we need to understand that the worship service looked the way it did and that the people of Jesus's day would have had a very positive image and expectation for the Pharisee. And they would have abhorred the tax collector. The Pharisee was the good guy. The tax collector was the bad guy. So with all of that information, let's look at our parable again, starting with the Pharisee and his prayer. Verses 11 through 12 say this, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So the Pharisee is at the temple, right? He begins to pray aloud, which again is a common Jewish custom. And we know this about the Pharisee. He's moral. He's religious. He is grateful to God for his morality and his religion. He says, God, thank you. And when you and I read his prayer, we immediately smell the stink of self-righteousness and pretentiousness. He stands by himself, probably because he's a Pharisee and doesn't want to be defiled by the great unwashed that he considers unclean. And so just by his position in the room, we know that he sees himself as more righteous than anyone else. Here's the thing, and I've said it already. Jesus knew that his original audience would not have immediately recoiled at this prayer from the Pharisee. There are qualities of this prayer that they really admire. He thanked God that he's not an extortioner. He thanks God that he's not unjust. He thanks God that he's not an adulterer or a tax collector. 
he's identifying himself as a moral man. He doesn't rip people off. And the people of Jesus's audience would have said, that's admirable. He's a good guy. And then he says that he isn't just a moral man. He's a religious man. He says that he fasts twice a week. That's kind of a big deal because in Jewish custom, you would have fasted maybe 12 times a year according to the law, but he fasts twice a week. Pharisees were so religious that they fasted on Mondays and Thursdays, but the reason was those were market days in Jerusalem, which meant that everyone could see their piety when they were fasting. Their fasts were dramatic. Additionally, they added up all of the listed tithes in the Torah, and they gave about 20% of all that they had, more than the standard 10% that was in the law. I imagine, and this is just me stepping back from this story, I imagine that most pastors would have lined up to have guys like this in their church. Right? He does all the right things, and he gives 20% of his income? Come on. So spiritual, and he gave lots of all that he had. And so Jesus' audience would have looked at this guy, and we maybe would have too, and had some regard for him. But Jesus is pointing out for us two things that are wrong this morning with this man's prayer. And here they are. First, there is this colossal egotism in his prayer. Notice that he prays, prays loud enough for all in the court to hear. His voiced prayer provided a golden opportunity to offer some unsolicited ethical advice to this unrighteous person around him. And what if the unrighteous people don't have any other opportunity to observe this man and his stratospheric piety? What if this is his only opportunity to tell them what they need to hear? Something that came to mind for me this week is the art of preaching prayers. Has anyone ever been preached to when someone's praying for them? Have you ever? Oh, let me explain. I would imagine that most of us have, at some point in our spiritual journey, had someone preach at us while they were praying for us. I remember when our kids were little, uh, Julianne and I shared a prayer request at a community group that we were a part of in Montana. And I think this is safe. I doubt if this person watches us online. If they do, I'm so sorry, but, but someone in our community group decided to teach us all about parenting in her prayer. Can I just say, if someone gives you a prayer request, don't preach to them in your prayer. Don't preach, pray, pray for them. And this Pharisee, what he was doing is he was preaching to people around him. He was not praying to God. He was praying to the people around him. He was so self-absorbed after his initial nod to God by saying, thank you, God. His prayer was essentially a self-congratulatory monologue disguised as a prayer. There are five uses of the personal pronoun I as he prays. His prayer is littered with pride. Additionally, this Pharisee drags the sleazy tax collector into his prayer. Why? Because when he draws someone more sinful into his prayer, then he can draw attention to his own righteousness. 
His self-estimate then depends upon the exposure of the moral failings of someone else. The first reality of his prayer is that it is colossally prideful. And then secondly, and most importantly, and maybe redundantly, there is no sense of sin or need whatsoever in his prayer. He's a moral man, he's a religious man, and his conscience is at peace, but the basis of his peace of his conscience rests squarely on the fact that he is a good person and there is no sense of need for forgiveness of his sins. And Jesus is pointing out, this is dangerous. I want to stop for a second and say this. Many professing, professing Christians today make the same error as the self-righteous Pharisee. What is that error? Well, we thank God that we're not living sinful lives, which is good. That's good. And we thank God for protecting us from the sin of others. Again, good. But the problem is this. We regard our righteous living as a result of our own discipline and effort. We have made the grace of God into our personal accomplishment. And it's important for us to notice that this, rea- this reality this morning as we pray. I want us to notice this. A Christian life that finds security in comparison is deluded. A Christian life that finds your security in comparison is mistaken. It is deceived. If I place myself as a righteous person by comparing myself to someone else, hear this clearly, that is so unbiblical. It is not the gospel that you are righteous because someone else is worse than you. That's not the gospel. It is not the gospel that you are saved because you are better than somebody else. That is unbiblical. And what the Pharisee does, rather than comparing himself to God's expectations of him, the Pharisee is comparing himself to others and their failures. And that is a massive mistake. In contrast to the Pharisee, Jesus moves on in his parable to the tax collector in his prayer. Look, at, look with me at verse 13. It says this, But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. The contrast here with the Pharisee's spiritual facade is striking, isn't it? The Pharisee stood in prominence. We know that. Our text tells us that the tax collector stood far off. The Pharisee stood up and his eyes were open to heaven. And the tax collector, the text tells us, he couldn't even bring himself to lift up his head. I don't know this for sure, but I like to think that Luke chapter 18 verse 13 is the reason why Christians for the last 2,000 years have bowed their heads and closed their eyes in prayer. It's a picture of humility. We know that historically, the normal stance for prayer in the Old Testament was to have your eyes open, to have your head turned to heaven, and to have your arms outstretched. And maybe you remember this, but the people of God held Moses' arms up as he prayed for the people of Israel, and this is exactly how the Pharisee prays. He has his eyes opened, his head turned to heaven, and his arms outstretched, waiting for God to bless him because he deserves it, he thinks. But the tax collector bows his head. The Pharisee is proud and the tax collector beats his breast. 
This would have been commonly understood amongst the people that Jesus was talking to. They would have known that the tax collector was distraught when it says that he beat his chest. Why? Because in Middle Eastern culture, people would beat their chests at particularly tragic things. In the New Testament, the only other case of people beating their chest is at the cross. Look at Luke 23, verse 48. It'll be on the screen. It says this, And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, so they had just seen the crucifixion of Jesus, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts. Why is this so important for us to know? Well, let me just say it this way. If it requires a scene as distressing as the crucifixion of Jesus to cause men and women to beat their chest, then clearly the tax collector of this parable is deeply distraught over his sin. And Jesus' listeners would have understood that. Unlike the Pharisee, the tax collector publicly verbalized his prayer. But the difference here is obvious. It is one thing to publicly announce your merits. It's quite another to broadcast your sins, which is what the tax collector did. This tax collector doesn't compare himself to anyone in his prayer, but he just cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I want us to notice two qualities of the tax collector's prayer that Jesus is pointing out to those listening today. And these are the qualities that should mark our prayers. Number one, the presence of humility in the tax collector. The humility and his sense of need is apparent, isn't it? Even before this guy opens his mouth, we see his humility, right? Because he stands at a distance, his head is bowed, he beats his chest. He didn't plead with God and say that he had now reformed his life by turning a new corner. He doesn't promise that things would be different in the future. He simply came to God as he was, an unworthy sinner with no basis or merit in himself for laying hold of God. And in his humility, he asks God for mercy. This man identifies himself as a person who must either be the object of God's mercy or he is going to justly be the object of God's judgment. And so he humbly asks God for what only God can do, and that is give him mercy. So he approaches God humbly, and then secondly, he puts his trust only in God. Notice that he does not ground his hope for acceptance with God on anything else. He doesn't ground his acceptance on anything that he can do. He turned to God. He said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm reminded of David's prayer in Psalm 51. Maybe you guys remember the story, but David was adulterous. He had Bathsheba's husband murdered. And in Psalm 51, after he is convicted of his sin, he doesn't say, God, do you remember the whole Goliath thing? I'm a pretty good guy. God, don't you remember all the stuff I've done for you? God, don't you think my righteousness should tip the balance in my favor a little bit? David says this in Psalm 51.1. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. David doesn't pray, oh God, forgive me because I'm a moral and religious man. Or, oh God, forgive me because I'm generally faithful to you. His prayer is, be gracious to me, oh God, because of your loving kindness. 
And this is exactly what the tax collector is doing here in Jesus's parable. He is saying, I'm a sinner. Be merciful to me because you are merciful. The tax collector recognizes his need for this forgiveness, and then he turns away from himself to trust God, who is the source of forgiveness. The Pharisee, on the other hand, is trusting in his own inherent, moral, religious, God-enabled righteousness, but there is no sense of sin or need in his prayer for God. And when it comes to the issue of being accepted by God, notice that the Pharisee looks at himself and he says, well, I'm pretty good. Whereas the tax collector looks at himself and he says, if this is what I am, and it is, I'm in trouble. And so he looks away from himself to God. I find this so fascinating and I think profoundly important to understanding our text. But the Greek word in our text this morning that is translated be merciful has in its definition the idea of propitiation. Kids, if you're taking notes, um, write that down. I know that propitiation is a weird word that we don't use very often. Um, In fact, probably never for most of us. But just to clarify, propitiation is just a fancy theological term that refers to God's wrath for sin being appeased because of the proper penalty that has been paid for that sin. So Christ is our propitiation for God's wrath. It's an appeasement. In the Old Testament Jewish sacrificial system, propitiation happened when Israel sacrificed goats and bulls and sheep for the forgiveness of their sins, right? Now, remember at the beginning of this message when I said that in this parable, the Pharisee and the tax collector would have been standing at an altar when they were praying where a lamb had been sacrificed and then blood was sprinkled on that altar as an atonement for Israel's sins. So in our parable today, one man goes to the temple for worship, he looks at the sacrifice, and he leaves confident that his pious achievements have guaranteed his status as one of the righteous ones acceptable by God. But the tax collector is looking at this sacrifice. And he says, Lord, have mercy on me. By the blood of this sacrifice, forgive me. Have mercy on me. And this is an amazing picture. Because in the Gospel of John, John intensifies the theology of this parable with Jesus' affirmation as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So although the tax collector didn't understand that Jesus would offer himself as the perfect and final lamb of God for the sins of the world, what he did know is that without the shedding of blood, there would be no forgiveness of sins. He knew that he needed God's mercy, his propitiation. He needed something to atone for his sins. And what Jesus is doing here is he is clearly telling the people that are listening and you and I today that God's mercy, which we all need, is found in the shed blood of the Lamb, not in your righteousness. And so Jesus ends today's parable with verse 14, and he gives us this strong declaration. And here's the declaration. He says this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified 
rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So Jesus emphatically states this truth this morning. God has declared the tax collector not guilty. Not only does he remove the guilt of his sins, but he has also credited to his account the perfect righteousness of the Lamb. Jesus Christ, the substitute who suffered the penalty for God's wrath. So this man walked into the temple as a guilty, despicable tax collector who ripped off people because of his own greed. But he walks out of the temple righteous before God. How could this be? The answer is that he received a righteousness that was not his own. It was credited to him. This man's righteousness was not credited to him because of his promise to be different. This man was not given righteousness because of a personal reformation or penance or purgatory. He was justified because as a sinner, he humbled himself and he prayed, God, have mercy on me. He prayed, oh God, be satisfied with this atoning sacrifice and forgive me. And Jesus says that this is the man who went down to his house justified. Meaning that God instantly, graciously granted him the mercy that he needed. And this is the great news that Jesus is sharing with all of us this morning. When a person does not exalt himself, but humbles himself and comes to God as a sinner, asking for mercy based on the atoning sacrifice of Christ, then God graciously and instantly justifies him. I want us to hear this so clearly this morning. The righteous heart's only hope is in the blood and the mercy of Jesus Christ. The point of Jesus' message this morning is hopefully a point that you and I never get tired of hearing. Nothing that you can do is the basis for God's acceptance of you. Jesus and Jesus alone is the basis of God's acceptance of you. And you may be wondering this, okay, Robbie, Aren't you making a little too much of justification here this morning? Shouldn't people change? Yeah, hopefully people do change when they're justified. But I don't think I'm making too much of it. Look back at verse 9 for your answer to that question. What is Jesus's whole parable about? He says this. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. I really want us to see this this morning. If you think that the thing that separates you from other people is that there is some goodness in you that is not in them, then you will be prideful and contemptuous and arrogant and rude and hateful. But if you and I think that the only thing that separates us from those who are lost is not our own righteousness, but it is the mercy of God, guess how we will respond to other people? We will be tender. We will be humble. You and I will look at other sinners plunging their own lives into self-destruction, which is all over our world. I don't have to preach to you about it. Just turn the TV on. But we will look at those people and our response will not be, oh, what a depraved human. God, thank you that I'm not like that. 
what we will say is, that's me. That is me. I am a sinner in need of a Savior. God, save that person like you saved me because I was heading down that road of destruction too. I am, and some of us might struggle with this, but I am as capable of that very same thing as that person is. It is only by your grace, Lord, that you have saved me. And when we see who we are without Christ, then there will be sympathy and mercy and a desire for others to be brought into a saving faith in Jesus Christ. That is what Jesus is teaching this morning in this passage. Worship team, you can come on up. Let me leave us this morning with two things as we finish out this series. One of the things is a statement for us to consider, and then the other is a question that I have that will hopefully prompt us forward. First, let me give you this statement. Jesus is teaching us this morning that prayer is an act of admission. Prayer is an act of admission. I'm so disappointed by how I put that PowerPoint slide together. There's no period in front of it. I'm sorry. All right. Prayer is abandoning all hope of independent capability. Prayer is an act of worship, for sure. It's an act of obedience. It is an act of submission, for sure. But prayer is also an act of admission, meaning this. Every instance of prayer is a confession in which I own my condition and embrace my need for God. In prayer, I confess again and again and again that I won't ever be what I am supposed to be and do what I am supposed to do without the forgiving, empowering, and delivering grace of the one to whom I am praying. I am telling you, when I pray like this, when I admit my need for God, when I look at the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ and know that he is the only way that I have access to God, my independence shrinks. And at the very same time, my anxiety shrivels. I am at the height of my anxiety when life depends upon my own righteousness. I am at the height of my hope and my joy when I continually admit my need for the grace of God. The tax collector prayed the prayer that should be on the lips of every one of us every time we pray, God, give me mercy because self-righteousness crushes our prayer lives. It reduces prayer to empty religious sayings. And I know this for sure, that the battle for spiritual sincerity and genuineness is one that we must pursue constantly. And it starts with prayer. Maybe this isn't true for you, but for me, I spend so much of my time trying to prove to people that I'm valuable, that I'm likable, that I'm smart, that I'm witty, that I'm capable, that I'm hardworking. It's, it's a natural thing I imagine lots of us struggle with. But the results of that can be pretend faith rather than genuine relationship. We can be honest with Jesus. We get to run to him in our poverty and our weakness, and we can know that when we do, he is never revolted, but always greets us with arms of grace. Jesus is showing us today that prayer is an act of admission. 
And finally, let me leave us with a question to spur us to share the good news with others. And the question is this, do you know a tax collector in your life? And I'm not saying somebody that works for the IRS. Do you know someone who feels so undeserving that they feel like they're too far gone to be loved by God? The message of Christ is not a club that we should use to beat other people with. It is an incredible gift that can delight and change people. The people who feel like they deserve it the least are often the ones who embrace it most joyfully. Do you know a tax collector? If so, you have an opportunity for great delight. Tell them this story. Give them the gift that is better than any gift that they could ever expect and then stand back and watch carefully because you may see God transform a life right before your eyes. This is God's grace. We are not our own, our own hope. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much again for your word. God, thank you for the conviction that comes with it. Lord, this morning I pray that, um, especially for myself, but for all of us, that we would be a people who, if we've found hope in you, that we will know that our righteousness comes from you alone. God, I pray that we would be a people that share that truth with the people around us. God, I pray that we would be confident and okay with knowing that it is your kindness that leads people to repentance. Lord, we trust you. We love you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.